0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise praise be to you, Lord Christ. Christ.
1: Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and we hide it in our hearts that we might know, love, and follow you all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I dropped my second child off for his freshman year at the University of Texas yesterday, which means I'm officially O for 2 in the Oklahoma State Recruiting Department. <laughs> It reminded me of the meanest thing ever said to me by one of my children, and that was when one of them was four years old, he looked me dead in the eye, and he said, I don't like you, I don't like Jesus, and I don't like Pistol Pete, which still kind of concerns me that he put Pistol Pete at the very end of it, but it was still very mean. (laughs) David Brooks, he published an article in The Atlantic this week entitled, How America Got Mean. He says he's been obsessed with two different questions for the last several years. One, why Americans have become so sad. And we have. 45% or so of high school students say that they continue to have persistent feelings of sadness and hopefulness. And over half of Americans say that no one knows them well. Brooke's second question is why have Americans become so mean He lists all sorts of evidence for this, including hate crimes rising to the highest level in 2020, as well as gun sales. But also, Americans give very little to charity now compared to what they used to. 25 years ago, higher than two-thirds of America gave to something, now far less than half give anything. And this is what he says. He says, The words that define our age reek of menace, conspiracy, polarization, mass shootings, trauma, safe places, we're meshed in some sort of emotional, relational, and spiritual crisis which undergirds our political dysfunction and the general crisis of our democracy. It's quite a quote. It's quite an article, in fact. Do you know what the number one song on iTunes is right now? Very good. Third service. Far better than the first two services. Yes. Men North of Richmond, meaning D.C. It's by this guy named Oliver Anthony who's never heard of He's this this young farmer that lives by himself in rural Virginia with his three dogs. No one knew of him until he self-released this song via YouTube and it immediately rocketed to the number one spot in the charts. It's this lament about the plight of the working class in modern America. And Oliver Anthony sounds sad, but he also sounds really, really angry. And millions upon millions of people are listening to it. So why? Why? This is what David Brooks explores in his article. But what I want to explore this morning is how we can be different. How can we be what Jesus calls good soil? So two points this morning, the difference and the enemies. First of all, the difference. Last week I gave you an overview of this parable and I told you that there are four soils and each represent a different type of person in their response to Jesus's word. And each and every one of you are one of these four soils. The first soil is trampled soil. Jesus calls it a path because its primary experience is receiving feet, not seeds, and represents a person for whom all the activity of the world, whether the messages of the world, the pursuits of the world, the powers, the people of the world, they make the greatest impression upon this person more so than anything else and hardens them so that Jesus's word never actually sinks in. The second soil is shallow soil. Jesus calls it rocky because in that part of the world, there's oftentimes a limestone shelf that exists just beneath the surface so that any seeds that get sown there, their roots can't go very deep and so they wither when the sun hits it. In fact, this type of person, this is the way of them for all things. Nothing can exist implanted in their hearts for very long because there's just not very much room. And the third soil is similar but different. This third soil is crowded. The word of Jesus sinks in like in the second soil, but so too do all these other seeds. And eventually these other seeds' roots and and thorns choke out Jesus' word and it proves unfruitful. And then finally, the fourth soil, which is simply called good. It receives the shortest description in part because in describing the other three soils, it's described because it is simply not what they are. It's not defined or determined by what's in them. It's not trampled. It's not shallow. It's not crowded. It's open and therefore able to receive and to hear what Jesus has to say. And that's part of the difference between the disciples and the crowds. We didn't print the entire parable for the sake of time, but notice we did print for you verse one, because Jesus there goes out from a house down to the sea to teach the crowds. But then in verse two, he goes out a little bit further, getting in a boat to teach them. And so we see Jesus establishing a distance between himself and the crowds. And I think for more than just pragmatic reasons. Because he often does this. He often creates physical space between those whom he is teaching. And it's often that he does this on or near water. For example, remember the time in Mark 6 where Jesus very strangely is walking on the water. That's not even the strangest part. He's walking by the disciples in the boat. And the scriptures say that he would have passed them by had they not called out to him. And then in Matthew 14, just one chapter after our gospel passage, Jesus again is walking on the water. That's when Peter calls out to him, Jesus, can I come out to you? And so he does. He goes out to Jesus on the water. But then there's also when Peter first meets Jesus in Luke 5, it's after a night of fishing and catching nothing. And it's such an arresting image of failure, one that we all know because we all know what the morning is like after a night of failure, trying to fix things, trying to understand things, clean ourselves or others or our circumstances up. And that's when Jesus steps into Peter's life, steps onto his boat and tells him, put out a little bit from the shore. And then he teaches the crowds, but then he says, put out into the deep with me in the boat. And it's there in the place of Peter's failure out in the deep that Jesus more fully reveals to Peter who he is and changes Peter's heart and his life. And the same dynamic is happening here. Don't miss the detail in verse 10 where the disciples separate from the crowds after hearing Jesus's parable. They cross this distance between them and Jesus, one that that Jesus has created, and they ask him for more. Just like Peter asked for more from Jesus out on the water when he asked him to come out to him. There's this desire that seems to be, have been stoked in them by their first hearing of Jesus's word. And it's this curiosity or this need about Jesus that they pursue. And that's the difference between them and the crowds, the disciples want or desire more from Jesus. And it begs the question of us, what do we want this morning? What is it that you want? Because our passage is laden with all these desire-filled words, the affective. Verse 20 mentions joy. Verse 22 speaks about the cares of the world. Verse 20 and 21 speak about something happening immediately, two different times. The only word that's used twice in our passage, it's this word that connotes a drivenness. And so time and time again, these words are used, and this is the difference between the disciples and the crowds, and it's not simply their intellect. Certainly they intellectually understand what Jesus is saying. The fourth soil is said to understand the word, but we could also say that the second and the third soil, at least maybe the first, also understood things intellectually. There was a, a clarity or a scent, maybe even with them, but this soil, the fourth soil, welcomes Jesus's word. It clings to it. In fact, if you go read the other Gospels that use this parable, Mark and Luke, they use these words welcome. Luke says that the fourth soil welcomes Jesus's word. Mark says it clings to it. So again, what do you want this morning? And I mean, really want. In the depths of your soul, what drives you beyond reason and rationale? What what drives you that makes sense? but at the same time is inexplicable and beyond explanation in its power over you or its pervasiveness in your life. Do you remember what Woody Allen so famously said after he married his stepdaughter? Do do y'all even know who Woody Allen is? (laughs) Is Woody Allen still alive? I hope he's alive. I, I realize I've been in ministry a while when I and I need to update my cultural references when I use them and half the people in the congregation look back at me and stare blankly at me. But Woody Allen, for those that don't know, he's a New York filmmaker, writer, comedian. He was married to actress Mia Farrow. They had a child together in the late 80s. then in the early 90s, he left her for her stepdaughter and married her. She was 22 at the time. He was 62 at the time. And do you remember what he said? The heart wants what the heart wants. There's no logic to these things, which is both true and untrue. There there is a logic to those things, to those things that we set our hearts upon and and want more than anything and continuously and even compulsively seek, but there's also more to them and more behind them than just intellect, than just reason. And if you wanna learn more about this, go read James K.A. Smith's book, You Are, Not What You Think, that's Descartes, but you are what you love. In this book, he essentially says what Christianity has always said, and that is that the spiritual state of our souls will determine our mind's receptivity to any word or any message, God's included. You see what Jesus says here in verse 11 in response to the disciples asking for more? He says, To you, it has been given or granted to know, to understand, to to receive, to accept, to know, to accept the secrets or the truth of the kingdom of heaven, meaning God, who he is, his ways, his goodness, his power, his rule. But to them, he goes on the crowds, it has not been given or granted. In other words, he's saying right now at this time, God has chosen you. He has chosen you to work in you and to change you and to give you a spiritual sight and a spiritual hearing that left to yourselves and apart from his work you would never have and you could never gain. It's why he says what he does in verse 16, blessed are your eyes because they see and blessed are your ears for they hear. In other words, he's saying, this is why you're seeking more from me and asking more from me. And I'm gonna give you more. I'm going to explain more because God has graciously chosen you right now To receive more. It it goes back to what I said last week, and that is very simply that God desires you. If you are already a Christian and you're here this morning, or even if you're not a Christian, you're considering becoming a Christian and you want more right now of God and from him, please know that's not normal. It is not normal. It's, it's not like all of the crowds who aren't here, all of the people who have heard something of Jesus and have walked away. And it is because God desires you and has graciously granted more of himself to you right now. So do not spurn that grace. Let it humble you, but let it also drive you and melt your heart and make you ask for more than you've already received from him. So back to my original question, what can we do to become good soil? In one sense, the answer is nothing. God, first and foremost, must do something. He must first and foremost give us new spiritual eyes to see the the gift of faith is first and foremost and always a gift. But in another sense, what we must do is what the disciples do, which is they ask for more. So what do you want this morning? When the desire arises for God, do not neglect it. Do not dismiss it. Ask for more. That's the first point. Second point, the enemies. Part of the reason that God must first and foremost grant us new spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear is because of the enemies and how strong they actually are. There's three enemies in this parable. Uh, They're described in the language of the first part that we didn't read as the birds, the sun, and the thorns. And Jesus interprets each of those for us in the second half of the parable, which we did read. In verse 19, he says the birds from the earlier part represent Satan. Verse 21, he says the sun's heat that scorches people represents tribulation and persecution. Tribulation being just general suffering common to all people and persecution being that suffering and difficulty that's specific to Christians because they are Christians. And then the third are the thorns, and they represent the various worldly cares and deceit that people know. And these are the enemies of God and of God's word, his seed being sown into people's hearts. And regardless if you realize it or not, they are your enemies, even if you aren't a Christian, because all people bear God's image, and these enemies are hell-bent even on ruining the image of God in all people. You may have heard the ancient Christian triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Same thing. This is one of the sources for that triad. Here called the heat, the thorns, and the birds. First of all, the birds or the devil. Back in verse four, Jesus says, the birds Come and devour the seeds that fall along the path. In verse 19, he says, The evil one comes and snatches them away. So, devours and snatches. Those are the words, unsettling words. And I assume that for many of you, the idea of a single, primary, personal, spiritual being that's behind all evil in this world is at least a little bit untenable. It sounds primitive or even uneducated. And so with modern anthropologists and psychologists, you agree that the idea of an evil one had to come from us. It had to come from some sort of projection or personification of the evil that we know to be within us that we couldn't explain. And so we made up the devil. We mythologized our own meanness and sin and made him up. And maybe, maybe. But one thing that I can't help but notice is how Modern educated people like us can't stop portraying a Satan-like being in popular culture. Five years ago when I preached on this passage, I mentioned the mind flare from Stranger Things. It was in the midst of the third season of that series and 40 million people were watching it. A year ago in the summer 2022, the fourth season came out and it became Netflix's highest viewed English language show ever. 1.35 1.35 billion hours watched in just 28 days. And in season four, that giant spider-like monster called the Mind Flayer becomes even more personal and more individual. He's given a name. His name is Vecna. And he is a being that was in our world, but was cast into another world called the upside down, which is a dark and predatory world that he rules. And he wants back into our world in order to rule it like the upside down. And so in season three, he tells L, the main Christ figure in the series, I'm coming for you first and foremost. And then I'm coming for your friends. And then I'm coming for everyone in this world to extinguish the light and the life out of it. And then in season four, he goes on and says, in the Upside Down, I found a means to realize my potential to transcend human form and become the predator that I was always meant to be. And the point is, is that the mind flayer now is a face in Stranger Things and a name. And maybe... The mind flare of Vecna is becoming more personal and more individualized in how they portray him. And even more and more people are watching. And that's just because he represents some sort of symbol of personified or projected human evil that doesn't actually exist outside of us. Or maybe it's because someone like Vecna is real. And though we modern people have tried to ignore him and to forget him, deep down we can't because we know he's real. And that's why we continue to portray him in our art. He's the first enemy. The second enemy is the world, symbolized by heat from the sun, which we should all be very familiar with at this point here this summer in Austin, Texas. I think today is 44 or 45 days of consecutive 100 degree heat. And what we see happening out there physically all around us with our, our trees and our, our grass and our plants, especially those that don't have deep roots, Jesus said is happening spiritually to people all around us because of the world. The world is every power on earth that is collectively set against God. Whether individual or groups, whether cultural or social or political or economic powers, anything and everything human and angelic that is set against God is the world. And Jesus says that the world is the primary source of the general pain that exists in the world. So whatever pain that you are experiencing, it's because largely you live in a broken and fallen world, but especially if you are a Christian, persecution may come and the world is also the source of that. And suffering or pain from whatever source does one of two things to us. And we know this. It either opens us up more in our heart, like like a pickaxe or plow pulling up hardened soil, making more room for God to be at work in our heart, or secondly, it withers us as this parable describes. It withers and wearies people in their relationship with God. And so what is your pain or your suffering Whatever it is, from whatever its source, what are you doing with it right now? What is it doing to you? And one last thing, and then I've got to move on. You need to know, we need to know, that if you are a Christian, you would become a Christian. The world will oppose you more and harm you more than if you didn't believe in and follow after Christ. And secondly, also, as I've already said, your pain does not have to be in vain. Your pain can clear out and open up room for God and his gospel to sink more deeply into your soul if that affliction or that difficulty had never happened. Psalm 119, the the author of that psalm actually says this. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Can you say that? Can you say that in the midst of what you are enduring right now? Or is what you're suffering withering you in your desire and your pursuit of the Lord? It's the second enemy. The final enemy is the flesh. It represents thorns in verse seven. It's specified by Jesus as the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches. And when you hear the word flesh in that ancient triad, don't think physical body. Uh, That's not what it is. You'd be mistaken in that. It is simply the spiritual power of sin that exists within each and every human heart, exerting its influence and seeking to rule. That is the flesh. It's like a bad virus or sepsis in a human body that seeks to take over. The flesh spiritually seeks to take over. And the scriptures teach that once someone becomes a Christian, the flesh no longer rules in their soul, but it still remains present and operative which in one sense makes the flesh the most dangerous of these three enemies because it never leaves us. And it's always internal to us and not external like the others. It's internal to us and therefore the way in which it operates and influences, it's far more subtle Which is why I think Jesus mentions its last. Tribulation and persecution, we can tell when that is happening to someone. It's external. We can see what they're suffering and why they're suffering, even. It's far more easily recognizable, but who can tell when the seed of God's word has begun to be choked out by success and prosperity? Who can tell when they've begun to be deceived? Thorns, they don't operate like blasting heat. They, they grow slowly and subtly near the ground or beneath the surface, which is why Jesus here, he's describing this, this unseen subtle shift in someone's soul when anxiety and wealth like two hands begin to slowly, even imperceptibly, squeeze tighter and tighter. So how do you know? How can you tell? How can you tell if you're just being a responsible, mature, hardworking person, a successful Christian, or whether or not anxiety and, and riches are some things that you're beginning to unfaithfully devote yourself to? How can you tell if you're being deceived, especially by riches? Tim Keller, whose memorial service was actually this week, I remember him once saying that in his 40 or so years in New York City ministering there, he had... Every imaginable sin or vice confessed to him by his parishioners and asked for help from them. Every imaginable sin or vice except one, greed. And he ministered in Manhattan. And that's because there's something uniquely deceptive about riches. What they whisper is not enough. Seek more, ask for more. And so, of what or from whom are you asking for more? Because it's something. It can't not be something. It's why Augustine famously prayed in his confessions, O Lord, our hearts are restless. They are restless until they rest in thee. Because we're like soil, friends. We were created to receive something far greater than us from outside of us. We were... We're created with life within ourselves, left to ourselves. That's why we're restless. We're always seeking. We're always desiring more. We're always looking for something from outside of us to be brought into us in order that we might derive life from it. We were created that way. And the world, the flesh, and the devil will gladly be that for you. But what they bring into your life won't be life and it won't be rest because you were made for God and for God alone and for his life to fill you and to give you rest and real life. It's who Jesus is and it's why he came. He is the sower and the seed. He is the desire of God in human frame for you. And he came from heaven and he was cast into the ground, like a seed cast into the ground to die, dying on the cross under the weight of all the evil that the world, the flesh, and the devil could ever generate, and his death was their defeat. In his death, they died, as proven by his resurrection, which means we don't have to be ruled by them any longer because Jesus has defeated them in his death and his resurrection. So believe in him and take his word into your heart and your life and live by it and follow him. And these enemies will show themselves to be the defeated foes that they actually are. And don't forget, never forget that God desires you. He desires more of you. Jesus still asked God, the father for more of you, for more of the world who does not yet know him, but also for more of the lives and the souls of those who do. Jesus still seeks more of you. So you ask for more of him and you will receive what you ask for and what you receive will be life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that the word of your grace, the word of your Son would sink deeply into all of our hearts that we might know the very life for which you created us to have. And Father, that the very life and light of this world might shine not only in us, but through us to a world that so desperately needs him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.